So while my book looks at confidence, it's not so much about saying, hey, you non-confident lady, please be more confident so you will be better. It's trying to point out to the person reading that maybe your lack of confidence isn't actually caused by your lack of ability and skill. Maybe your lack of confidence is caused by a system that's making you feel that way. If you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lilovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Jo. I'm Lucy. Welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. So being a new mum is an experience that is different for all of us. For me, the hardest part wasn't caring for my new baby. It was dealing with the huge identity shift that comes with your life being completely transformed in ways that you can't even imagine. It was definitely like that for me, especially with a baby who had reflux and just didn't want to sleep, which I know is not a common story. And it probably is one of those situations that led to me returning to work probably a bit earlier than I would have done in hindsight, although at the time it was the right decision to make. So it's definitely better to not regret and not look back. It's funny, we both had different experiences with our new babies, but we both found ourselves going back to the same thing, which was work, which was what we knew. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't an easy option for me. It was more that I didn't regret going back to work. I know I've spoken to a lot of new mums and they're like, oh, I wish I hadn't had to go back to work. And other mums are like, oh, I'm desperate to get back. And I felt a bit lackluster in that I was happy to go back, but I was not desperate for it or anything like that. But it was very much the idea that I'm going to go back to something that I know how to do. I know what my role is. I know you know, what I need to get done in the day. And the expectations are a lot easier to understand than they are from a six month old baby. So true. And the more we talk about it now, the more common I think that that is. Yeah, absolutely. Especially amongst professional career women. We also know, of course, that not everybody's experience is the same. And so that in itself is enough reason for it to be important that we talk about people's different return to work experiences or just different experiences of new motherhood and that helps us to feel less alone. Absolutely. And everybody does have a different experience, you know, even yours and mine, you know, although there's similarities, there's lots of differences. And I think particularly for people who are looking back on their journey or perhaps are about to become a mum again or for the first time, it's really important to hear that there's lots of different ways of doing it. And we were really lucky to have a good discussion about this with Jamila Rizvi. So Jamila is a writer, presenter and commentator, appearing regularly on The Project Today and Radio National. She's the author of The Motherhood, which is a series of letters written by Australian women who are sharing what they wish they had known about life as a new mum. And she also wrote Not Just Lucky, which she describes as a career manifesto for millennial women. Before Jamila entered the media, though, she worked in politics as an advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments, and Rudd government again, as she says, <laughs> and she lives in Melbourne these days with her husband, Jeremy, and their toddler, uh, little boy, Rafi. We had a really good, fun conversation with Jamila. It was just like having a conversation with an old friend, although neither Joe or I had met her before, but it really was a great, fun chat. 
Yeah, Jamila is a lovely person and she's had such a varied career path and it was really thought-provoking getting her perspective on women and mothers at work and how she dealt with her own identity shift after the birth of her son and, of course, what led her to writing the books that she's written. So speaking of the books, Jamila and Penguin Random House have very kindly given us two copies of The Motherhood to give away to you. So find us on Instagram or on Facebook at Managing the Juggle for your chance to win a copy. And without further ado, please enjoy today's episode with our conversation with Jamila Rizvi. Hi, Jamila. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So... The first thing I need to ask you is that I spent some time recently reading your book, Not Just Lucky. It was gifted to me by a good friend. And one of the things that I really took from it was the fact that a career isn't a career ladder anymore. It's all about just doing the different things that kind of appear in your life. And sometimes you can look back and actually see that there is a bit of a a line there that connects all the things that you've done to get you to the place where you are now. Looking at your career and the different things that you've done, it definitely seems like you've jumped around a bit, or at least it does from someone looking from the outside. So I was really interested to know, you know, how did you go from a law degree to politics to media and to where you are now? So I am a strategic person. And in my life, I like to try and make plans and I do strategize around career stuff and bits and pieces. But in terms of sort of my career trajectory and movement, it's been utterly devoid of a plan. Um, (laughs) That's not true. I've always got a plan, but the plan doesn't happen. And then something exciting comes along, um, something shiny comes along and I want to do that. So I swap. Shining objects. Exactly. I'm very easily distracted from the ultimate goal, particularly when the ultimate goal isn't particularly clear. Mm, this podcast <laughs> is one of those bright, shining objects for me, it actually. Is, it <laughs> is. And a podcast can be, right? Sometimes an idea comes along or an opportunity comes along and you just want to grab it with both hands and kind of make space for it. And I think for a lot of women I know who are entrepreneurs and who've tried new things or fallen into new careers, it hasn't been some grand, glorious planned out strategic thing where they went and got finance and they wrote a business plan. It's been something that's happened quite organically. Mm. And I'm a big believer in, in chasing the opportunities that come your way that you feel like are interesting to you and are exciting to you for whatever reason. So for me, I studied law and economics at the ANU, which ultimately became a law and commerce degree because I found out there was a lot of maths in economics, yeah. which is probably something I should have <laughs> no known likes in advance. <laughs> Um, and it shouldn't have taken me so many years to figure it out. I chose those degrees because I got the marks rather than for any strategic reason again. It's so common for a law student to say that. Yeah. Year 12 students, I think, look at their marks and think they have to use them all up. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I felt like I had to use them all up. You know, I didn't get the marks for medicine, so Laura was. (laughs) That, that was I was never going to be a doctor. People would have died. Um, <laughs> so I studied, I studied that and then very quickly at university, though, I, I found a love of politics. That was something um, that came to me very early. I think I, I joined the University Labor Club in orientation week uh, the year before I turned 18. So that was there from the beginning. Yeah. And I went and worked for a bunch of politicians, amongst them Kevin Rudd, who was the Prime Minister for a while. And the Prime Minister for a while again. (laughs) And um, in between those Prime Ministerships, I worked for Kate Ellis when she was the Minister for a whole bunch of different things and had a great working relationship with her. And 
Then I saw a tweet from Lisa Wilkinson, who used to host the Today Show. She tweeted out a job working with Mia Friedman at Mamma Mia, which was Mm. then a tiny little website that reached a solid number of people. I think it was 10 or 20,000 people a day. So a solid amount, but certainly not a big player in the media. Mm. So I went and worked for her. And then after I had my little boy, I went freelance. And since then, I have had many, many shiny objects. And have just kept running after different shiny objects, which have included kind of TV, radio, books, and other bits and pieces. You wrote about your return to work in your book, Not Just Lucky, after you had your son and you went back to Mamma Mia. And you speak about how you wanted to quit and your husband told you to stay and that eventually you did leave. Why did you make that decision? And what was it that made you decide after having your son that you wanted to change your career path? You know, I think similar to when you look back on your career and you kind of paint a pretty picture or that that smooth line on the graph that says, this is what my career looks like. This is what I did. I think I kind of tried to do the same thing about that departure from Mamma Mia. I tried to tell one pretty little story, but the reality was there were a whole bunch of things. Um, The workplace had changed. The business had changed. I had changed fundamentally. My values had changed Mm -hmm. and it wasn't the right fit for me anymore and I wanted to quit on that first day back at work partly because it was a monumental disaster (laughs) I flew to Sydney at 6 30 in the morning with my newborn and the day I came downstairs from my apartment there was a note on the pram that wasn't so much passive aggressive as just aggressive telling me not to keep the pram there and then I missed the flight and like everything went wrong that could have gone wrong Um, anyone would decide they'd want to quit after that day (laughs) nothing to do with business and my husband actually convinced me to stick with it and and he said if you still feel like this in eight weeks then quit but you don't want to quit on a whim you don't want to quit because it's hard going back to work with a baby because it's going to be hard going back to work with a baby no matter what no matter where you go back to work and no matter what you do but I did take that opportunity to try and carve out for myself a job that suited my needs at the time And I did want more time with my son and I didn't want to work full time. And if you had told me that the day before I gave birth, when I was still working, I would not have believed you. It's interesting, that concept of full-time. Lucy and I talk about this a lot. You know, we, we talk about not wanting to work full-time, but then we look back on the number of hours we're dedicating to work <laughs> and we're like, there's still 40 hours here. It's just spread out over seven days as opposed to lumped into a more condensed, short period of time. Do you feel like that since you quit to not work full-time that you still really work full-time? full-time? <laughs> yeah, I think before I left full-time in inverted commas work, I was working double full-time, if I was honest. Like I, not because I was being driven to some crazy degree or something, I was driving that. I have always loved work. And my first full-time, again, (laughs) job was working for Kevin Rudd and I was 22 and I started work at 3.30 in the morning and I finished work at 6 p.m. at night and I worked a 12-day fortnight. So that was my version of full-time when I started and I... I never did that again and I never intend to, but um, <laughs> I, I pushed myself pretty hard for most of my working life. And it was after having Ruffy that I did kind of reassess some priorities, I think. And I think I realized that I had the potential to be a better friend and a better family member and probably a better wife as well. I hope my husband never hears this. <laughs> 
there are things that are wrong with you too. <laughs> we <laughs> had very few male listeners. There was room for improvement of me as a person, I think. And I found that by cutting back on work. But having said that, yeah, I, I mean, I tell people now, they say, oh, what's your work like? And I say, oh, I'm a freelancer and it roughly works out to four days. And that's probably not true. I'm a freelancer and my son is in childcare four days a week. Yes. I work far more than the, those childcare hours. Yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's times when they sleep or there's times when you can still check the phone when they're still around. Yeah. And I often find myself working at night, you know, often on the computer in front of the television with my husband or I often have speaking engagements or television is often on at night and I often have writing gigs and writers festivals and stuff on the weekend so I'm not someone who has those sort of nine to five formal hours anymore and I couldn't have them even if I wanted to. It's something that a lot of people don't ever want to go back to me included. So you've recently announced on social media that you're taking a new job perhaps in inverted commas as well, with future women as the editor at large and hosting their new podcast, which I'll be really interested to listen to as well. So given that you have your son and you've just talked about how you've wanted to restructure your working life, how are you going to structure your working week to deal with these other priorities that you have now identified? Yes. Well, the best time to talk about how you're strategically going to structure your working week is before you've started the job because then it can be perfect and no one can tell me that it won't work. So my plan, which will not fail, uh, (laughs) is going to be (laughs) pretty standard office hours, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, It's only a part-time role with uh, future women, which I'm really pumped about because it's going to leave me some space to work on other projects. Mm -hmm. And then Thursdays I will keep going with the kind of corporate speaking and literary speaking work that I do. Um, I've also just launched a new event series with my friend and now colleague, Claire Bowditch, which is running uh, in Melbourne. And we're hoping to take that national. So that's going to be kind of my Thursdays. And then Fridays, as much as I can, I'm going to try and spend a day with my kid. But again, as we just discussed, it doesn't always quite work like that. Yeah. No, we can have plans though, like you say. They're nice. They're like a blanket. They make you feel really warm and cozy even if they're illusionary. (laughs) So let's talk about your books. You very kindly gave us a copy of your new book, The Motherhood, which is a collection of letters that have been written by Australian women and they're sharing basically what they wish they'd known about life as a new mother. Um, We think that your purpose here was to share the depth and the breadth of new motherhood and tell us that, you know, we're not alone. Everybody goes through it, but at the same time, everybody experiences it kind of differently. That's exactly right. You can write my press releases in yeah. if you were interested in the job. <laughs> we read Watch it. out, Chloe. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that I liked in particular about the book was that your focus was on women, which sounds silly because we're talking about motherhood, but I found, especially during the early new motherhood phase for me, there was so much focus on the baby which I get, you know, there's a whole new person that is now exists in the world. But I felt like nobody was really interested in talking to me about my experience and how I'd changed and how all of this stuff and this new person was having such an impact on me. And what I really liked, especially about your book, was that that's exactly what you're doing. You're talking or women are telling us about their experience and it's not all about the baby. Yeah, you definitely have the PR job. That is exactly oh, what I was me. trying to do. Um, <laughs> 
am by nature a very selfish person. And one of the things I found really tough about new motherhood was my life was all about someone else. Not most of my life, not parts of my life, but every element of my life. And when I talk to other women who are pregnant with their first child and, and what it's going to be like, and I always try to say, this was my experience, as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, this will be your experience. But my experience was that I worked up until the day I gave birth. I was very focused on my work. I had my little boy and no one tells you how horrific that labor business is and women would get medals. If, honestly, seriously, why do men get medals for going to war? Anyway, had the baby and I remember feeling like I'd won an Oscar, like I'd won this trophy and all my friends and family and everyone I'd ever met were coming to see me and see my Oscar and tell me I was great and well done. And then after about two weeks, they stopped coming and no one was interested in me anymore. They just wanted to hear about the Oscar. Mm-hmm. And the Oscar was annoying yeah. <laughs> and didn't let me sleep. <laughs> and it's hard to describe, but it, it felt like the focus stopped ever being about me and what I'd done and what I was experiencing. It was all about him. And, you know, it's one of the things I always try really hard when I am chatting to new mothers. I always say, how is your sleep? How are you sleeping? Not how's baby sleeping. I know they're completely intertwined, but my focus here is also on you and your well-being because your well-being is key. And yes, they're connected, but they're not the same. And that's what I wanted this book to be about. This book doesn't tell you how to look after a baby. It doesn't tell you about other women's experiences of how to look after a baby. It's about how to look after you during that really complex transition from woman to mother, which is, as you say, a very common experience. A good portion of the world will have a baby in their lifetime, but it's also a unique experience and that we all go through it very differently. And one of the things I always point out uh, about this book is two of the letters are actually from women who are mothers to the same baby. And their letters are entirely different. They had completely different experiences of bringing this little person into the world. Sure, that was going to be a different experience, but their early weeks with that little person were completely different, despite the fact it was the same baby, right? Mm. And so I think what I really wanted to get across with this book is no matter how you're feeling, no matter what you're going through, it's valid and you're entitled to feel however you do. When Lucy and I were discussing the book after we both read it, um, kind of, you know, our own little mini book club session, (laughs) we discussed the fact that it it really did come out, you know, come across to us as not being a, a, it wasn't a how-to advice, you know, as you said, it it wasn't about this is how you should raise a baby. And I think that... God, no, I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had three and I'm still learning. It wasn't about how to do it. It was really about saying that everyone is going to do it differently and we're all looking for answers and don't necessarily take this as advice this is just me talking to myself which I I quite like that and I was wondering how did you actually go about briefing because I think most of the women who wrote the stories are your friends or, or people that you know is that right? I certainly started with friends. Yeah. I started putting the list together with friends who were in the media who I'd heard stories at about their experience of motherhood before. And then I fleshed it out with women who I just thought would have interesting stories, high-profile women who I thought might have a different take. And then I was actually really deliberate about how I then put the book together and the additional stories I brought in. I wanted to push back against the white, straight, able-bodied, very well-off version of Australian motherhood, which is mostly what we read about. And that experience is certainly in there, but I wanted to have women who 
had all different kinds of experiences. I wanted to have women who were single mothers, women who had lost children, women who had multiples, women from different cultures and backgrounds, First Nations women. I wanted to have women with disabilities, women who had children with disabilities. You can never show the full gamut of women's experience, but I wanted to be as inclusive as possible and not just have a whole lot of letters from women who sounded and looked like me. And how did you brief them? What did you tell them to write? I gave them a very limited brief, which I think scared a lot of them. (laughs) Uh, It was very short. I said, I want you to write me a letter of between 1,200 and 2,400 words. Up to you. I want you to write to yourself. And as you say, that was a really deliberate choice. Again, I felt like if they were writing to themselves, then they couldn't be accused of mummy judgment. Mm. They were only judging themselves. And if you say, I think you should breastfeed, keep with it. You're only saying that to yourself. You're not telling anyone else that's the best thing for them. You're just telling yourself that's the best thing for you. So I chose that device. I said, write the letter to yourself. And I said, you can write anything you want about what you wish you'd known in those first three months of having a baby. And I was happy for the letters to be happy or sad or angry or poetic or instructional whatever they chose. And I I think that was important because ultimately the book is 32 letters of women writing about exactly the same thing, right? For it to be interesting and engaging from a readership perspective, they had to be different. And I was shocked by not ever feeling like, oh, I've heard this before while editing the letters. And I spent a lot of time with each woman. There were a couple of those letters. I think we went through 30 or 40 drafts. (laughs) You know, we went back and forwards, back and forwards and making those letters sing. And I did think I experienced a lot more sameness while I was editing, but I didn't find that. Each story was so different. Sorry, how did you feel reading and participating in that? Yeah, different for every letter. There were some letters, uh, for example, there's a letter from Anna Rose, who's a climate change activist who lives in Canberra, and we had remarkably similar experiences. I think not necessarily similar babies, And I think she had a much rougher time. I think I just complained more. Um, (laughs) But we were both people who very much defined ourselves by our work. And I think our biggest challenge was a common one, which was grappling with the loss of identity. And and who am I when I'm not working, if I've always defined myself by my job? So for hers, for example, I got very emotional. I felt very personally connected to it. Whereas, for example, I remember reading Laura Chalmers' letter, who is a journalist with the Sunday Mail in Queensland. And she talks about the moment she had her little boy going, yes, this is who I am meant to be. I was put on this earth to be a mother and this is the best thing I've ever done. And while I feel that now, I didn't feel anything like that at the time. And I remember reading her letter and thinking, wow, did we do the same thing? (laughs) It was just completely foreign. So I had a very different reaction to each letter, which is I imagine how the reader is going to feel as well. There are going to be some letters that you find a lot of commonality in, some that seem quite different and give you an insight into someone else's perspective, some that are really useful and some that are quite foreign. We noticed sort of some common themes that go through and one of them for me that stands out the most, and I think I probably had quite a similar experience to you from what you've just told us. Um, The main thing that stood out for me was in your introduction and the way you speak about the loneliness of new motherhood and I'll be honest and the boredom <laughs> yeah and that bit I'll be honest with you I cried when I read that and I text Joe saying I am sobbing at your introduction and I was soon laughing so it's not like it's all sad everyone oh gosh I'm, I'm so sorry <laughs> no I could just so relate to that because yeah. 
I felt so lonely. And you talk about how loneliness is not the exception, it's the rule. And that actually most of us feel lonely. It's just that for some reason we don't talk to each other about that. Yeah. And you then talk about how finding the women who are doing this with you, and this relates into your other book, Not Just Lucky, which we'll talk to you about in a minute. But this is a theme in there as well about finding your people and kind of doing life together. But for me, that really, I, I guess it hit a nerve because that was what I struggled with as well. And so I could really relate to you saying, this is lonely and where are all my people? Yeah, that stood out to me. Yeah, I remember thinking back on it and going, well, of course you were lonely. Like you're an extrovert who is used to spending the day in an office of 100 with a team of 40 who were constantly talking to you. Like you, you are like such a social being and you were surrounded by people and you just went to hanging out with one person who had nothing to say. Like <laughs> what it was lonely and isolating. Who have nothing to say but is incredibly demanding. Yes. And I, I think that's one of the things that you struggle to convey um, once you're a mum to women who haven't had children yet or who are expecting and they ask how it's going to be. And it's like you'll never be that busy and also that bored. Yeah. The, the two, busy and bored, can happen together. Yeah. It was a common theme and it's something that I shared the same feeling as well, this idea of, um, you know, Lucy and I have both shared before on the podcast that we both went back to work quite early, Lucy even earlier than me. A lot of it was we don't know what, what we're doing at home and we're bored or we don't feel that sense of achievement of on all those kinds of things. And these things came through in the letters from a number of the women. Mm. And I found that really interesting, you know, that lack of control, that lack of achievement. And they're all typical, I think, of women who like to have careers, you know, that the women that we're talking with, you know, they want to have their career and, and be achieving in that space. But they also want to have a family. It's just trying to work out how you can do both and do it in a way that works for you. Yeah. And I think it's one of the true challenges of modern motherhood, right? I mean, there are so many things about motherhood that are way easier and way better today than they were 50 or 100 years ago. But one of the things that is harder is that we work. And for most families, that's not a choice anymore. Two incomes for a family is necessary in the current economic climate. And so even if you don't want to be at work, you kind of have to be. And so that juggle becomes a requirement of modern motherhood. And we haven't quite figured out how to navigate that yet because we haven't seen that entry of women into the workforce matched by a departure from men. And I don't say that in the sort of men get out of the workforce kind of way, although that'd be nice. Um, (laughs) I say that more in the sense that men haven't taken up a similar role in the home. And so I think a lot of women feel just completely overwhelmed by it all and, yeah, completely isolated by it all because this isn't how we were supposed to raise children, right? We were supposed to be in the cave with the mothers and the aunties and the sisters and the cousins and the help and now we're alone at home hanging out and the only help you get is the help you pay for. And I'm making it sound so depressing. Well, and that's one of the (laughs) things that's really interesting that with the common themes about hardness and lacking sleep and breastfeeding being difficult and everything else, there was still so much humor in the letters from the women. And, And that was great. You know, as Lucy said, she was crying and laughing sometimes at the same time. And it made me think as I was reading through some of the stories about that ABC drama, The Letdown, Yes, uh, where, you know, a woman's 
gone from being a career lady to having a baby and trying to deal with just the, the weirdness that, that comes from what you need to sometimes do when you're a mum. So it was, it was great to have that variety of feeling that came yeah. from reading the book. In that moment, I think there's a sense of reconciling your old life and your new life and a recognition that the old life is actually never coming back. And that, you know, even though now things are fine and I'm at work and I go out and I enjoy myself and I don't have a child attached to me 24-7, like, of course, it changes. But that recognition that you're never going to have that completely carefree Mm. engagement Mm. with social life, with work that you had before, that that never comes back again. And I think that's a huge emotional burden to come all at once when you're pumped up with 10 million hormones. Like that's a lot to cop. It is a lot. And I think Jessica Rudd summed this up nicely in her letter because she poses this question to herself, will I ever be me again? And then she answers it and she says, no, you will be better than you. You will be me as in future her. I love that because, you know, you take all these pieces that you kind of are thrown and you're, what do I do with this? But you work through it and then you become this new and improved version of yourself. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's funny, I I chat to my husband now and we said the other day, if we had to make a list of two columns of the things we've lost and the things we've gained from having Ruffy, you know, like the gained list is 10 million miles long, you know what I mean? And the lost list is like, sleeping in yeah (laughs) like which is don't get me wrong like it's really nice quite like sleeping but I think the big thing we decided we'd lost was spontaneity yeah we're not really spontaneous anymore because we can't be but hey I'll give that up (laughs) you know it was still worth it it's all like I, I think it's rare you come across parents who say it wasn't worth it I agree so you've written another book that came before the motherhood, which we've already mentioned, which was not just lucky. And that wasn't even that long before you wrote the motherhood. It was only 2017, I think, that you released not just lucky. I've done a very good job of creating a facade that makes me look very effective. Yeah. <laughs> like not just lucky is a book of which I wrote myself, the whole thing. And the motherhood is a collection of essays of which other very talented people wrote. And I edited, sure, but the, the bulk of the work was done by other lovely women. You know what you're doing right there? You're giving the credit to the other people. Yes, but they deserve it. It's different when when you're giving credit than genuinely deserved. (laughs) My contribution to the motherhood, which is about 3,000 words at the start and about 500 words at the end, is all mine and is very good. (laughs) (laughs) So not just lucky, you describe this book as a career manifesto for millennial women. And basically the idea of the book is, as its title would suggest, that we are more than lucky. We're not just lucky. Yeah, that's right. So this book came about, I think it was kind of floating around in my head for a good couple of years before I finally put it down on paper. I've always been someone who loves career books and books about women and work and books that look at feminism and the interaction of feminism and workplaces. But A lot of them are written at a level of complexity and in such an academic way that they're not a kind of easy, cruisy read that you're going to kind of hang out with. They take a bit of work, (laughs) I suppose. And I wanted to write a book that didn't take work, where I'd done the work and took the complex and tried to simplify it as much as I could and kind of mixed it in with personal anecdotes that made you feel a bit less rubbish about yourself and a little bit of how-to that kind of worked as best I could could make it work. The way I like to describe Not Just Lucky is that when I thought about who I was writing for, I never saw myself sort of on a podium talking 
to people and telling them how to be. I always saw it as I was out to dinner with my girlfriends and everyone was having a glass of wine and I was giving someone a pep talk and it was coming from a place of we're mates hanging out together. I know some stuff, you know some stuff, but I tell you one thing I definitely know for sure, which is how good you are. So that was what I was trying to do in writing this book. It feels like you're having a conversation with a friend. That's exactly how it feels. Good. So yeah, I, I see where you're coming from there. Definitely. So the catchphrase, the tagline for your book is that women do the work, but we don't take the credit. If I was to ask you, why do we do this? Can you sum that up? The patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) No, genuinely in the book, I look at the idea of a double glazed glass ceiling. I think we're all pretty familiar with the concept of the glass ceiling, that the way that our workplaces have been structured for a very long time diminishes women's power and diminishes women's ability to participate in the same way as men and to move up through the ranks in the same way as men. And that has a whole lot of repercussions and complicated repercussions that mean women have less money, less security and less good lives as as a result. So that's the first glass ceiling. What I've argued in Not Just Lucky is that Because of that structure, women have consistently not advanced in workplaces in the same way as men. But instead of going, hey, this system doesn't work, there's something wrong with this system, we've gone, oh, wow, there must be something wrong with us. And specifically, we go, there must be something wrong with me. And so as a result of that, we actually double glaze that glass ceiling. We put in another layer that makes it harder for us to succeed because we think there's something wrong with us. We think we're undeserving. We think we just got lucky rather than recognizing the talent and the skill that we do have. One of the comments that you make in the book is that workplaces have been built by men for men. I love that phrase. And I think it's referring to the gender bias that exists in the workplace and and those types of concepts and how it leads to this decrease in confidence. And you give, as you said, some how-to advice on boosting confidence and mention that you're not immune to the situations that we find ourselves in. Oh, God, no, I'm terrible. Yeah, I think we all are to one extent or another. So out of all of the tips that you shared with women, what's your favourite thing to do for yourself? Oh, wow. I've never had to pick a favourite. This is like (laughs) having to choose a favourite child. This is like as hard as when people ask me, like, what's my favourite essay in the motherhood? I'm like... That's too hard. Yeah, I love them all equally. Um... You know, one of the ones that really helped me, this sounds really small, was to look at how I use apologetic language in my ordinary life and particularly at work. The one that people tend to point to the most that women do is that we say sorry a lot at work, that we apologise. And when I used to work at Mamma Mia, it was ridiculous how much women used to apologize like you know the team would apologize we'd apologize for going on holiday we'd apologize because we were in the bathroom like you do not that is just not something like I would prefer you went to the bathroom and were one minute late to the meeting then I don't know like went to the bathroom in the meeting (laughs) the alternative is not a good alternative and that apologetic language I think we're we're quite aware of when it comes to words like sorry we're less aware of it with apologetic language that creeps into what we do that's less overt. And for me, the example I give in the book is the word just. Yes. I insert the word, insert the word just into just about every sentence, just about all the time. <laughs> if, you, if you unpack that word and what it means, it's a word that places you immediately in an inferior position to the person that you're speaking to. So can I just have a minute of your time? I'm asking for something. I'm putting you up on a pedestal and saying your time is important and could I have a little bit of it just for me? When I say I'm just a mum or I just work part-time, 
every time I'm using that word just to make myself a little bit less. And it's like my favorite word. I think I give the example in the book of when I did one of those stupid Facebook word clouds. Yes. It was like my third most used word. Like how embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I spoke to a copywriter once and she said that that's one of the things that you can do when you go through your copy. She's like, just remove the word just. It's a completely unnecessary word. Similar to the word very. She said it's a completely unnecessary word. Just take it out. And yet when you do take it out, so I always recommend people start with their emails because it's quite hard to do when you're just speaking and you're on the run. When you do take it out, you suddenly don't sound very nice. You read back an email without all the just and the sorries and the apologetic language. You sound really rude, but you're not. You're just being direct and straightforward and using language as it was intended to be used. And it's just that we're so used to women using this kind of apologetic language, this language that makes us small in the workplace. And that it feels strange when a woman doesn't use it. Yeah. Another of the practical advice, how to tippy kind of things, tippy, that's a new word. The tips that you give us in the book is this idea of a whiteboard night that we loved. You say, this is where you get together with friends and ask them to describe you and to tell you what they think you're good at and not good at and skills that you'd list on a resume. And they give you some criticisms and that kind of thing. And it's about being honest. And what we wondered was whether you've ever done one of these yourself you say about how you've done them with your friends but have you done them of yourself and if so what did you learn from it so the very first one I ever did was myself it was a bit accidental three girlfriends we did all of us at once and claimer we didn't have a whiteboard we had <laughs> giant post-it notes on that so occasion. You, you planned this out it wasn't just an accidental thing you planned no it wasn't we came up with it well after we'd had a lot of wine and then uh, three of us <laughs> decided to get together and the next week and do the same thing except I think we swapped the wine for tequila and we had these big sticky post-it notes all around the room of my mate's flat and we basically talked about what we admired about each other what skills we thought were going to get us ahead we were friends but we also worked together we were honest about our ambitions we were honest about the jobs we wish we could have that we felt like we weren't allowed to say we wanted because maybe we weren't good enough we kind of just got rid of the inhibitions for the night and yeah I did learn things I think you have your own little version of yourself and what you're good at and what you're bad at Mm. and it's often a very fixed version I have my little spiel about myself of what I'm good at what I'm not what I am suited to what I'm not and seeing yourself described through the eyes of someone who cares about you and comes from a place of love but is perhaps more objective is always really useful and really helpful and hearing their version or even just a slightly different articulation of what your skill set is can be hugely beneficial I remember the one that really sticks in my head was one of the girls said to me you are a really great explainer and I remember going what (laughs) that's not going to help me do anything but thanks <laughs> but she said she said no you are really good at taking something quite complex and once you understand it you can use really simple language to say it and I was like so I'm good at dumbing stuff down and she was like yeah but that's an important skill like that is useful I remember at the time being slightly offended that that my big takeaway from the night was that I was good at dumbing stuff down but you know, that's what this book is right it's a whole lot of academic studies and discoveries made by social scientists and psychologists and gender theorists explained in a way that you can grab any young woman between 18 and 40 off the street and say, here, have a read and she's going to be fine with it. 
mm-hmm. and enjoy it too because it's written in language that's interesting so I you know as, as much as I was kind of bothered by that on the night I, I like I think it's helped make a career so and I think everyone has that you know but you don't necessarily know how to articulate your strengths and not in the way they'd be articulated on a resume or you know by some stupid workplace test that puts you on a graph and gives you lots of letters for how you feel things and whatever <laughs> so there's three categories of human but I think doing that with friends particularly friends you've had some work interaction with can be incredibly helpful because sometimes you just don't realize what you're good at mm. what was it that prompted you all to do it you know, I can't remember, possibly because of all the wine. Yeah. Um, we, we were all working in, in Parliament together. We were all working in the Gillard government at mm-hmm. the time and they were actually both very good friends of mine but didn't know each other very well. And I think we were all at a bit of a crossroads. We, we were all around 24 and we'd been working for the government for a few years and we were tired and I think by that point we knew that that government probably wasn't going to last mm. and we didn't know what we were going to do next. And that, that coming up with that articulation of what did we want to do? What were we good at? Um, that was really complex. And I think it was something we needed to do, but yeah, I think it was brought on by wine. <laughs> As lots of good things are, <laughs> including babies. Um, one of the things that I thought when I read the book was that, the concept of not just lucky is that, you know, women are the level of confidence that they should be at and that we need to boost our confidence and that, you know, you comment in there that part of the reason for that is the structure of the work environments that we're working in. But the book is premised around supporting women to develop their confidence. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the book written by Catherine Fox, Stop Fixing Women. Yes, Catherine and I have discussed her book and my book. So, so tell me, tell me about your discussions, because obviously in hers, it's around this concept that we need to stop fixing ourselves, that we are just fine the way that we are. And it's the, it's the workplaces that we need to change. Whereas yours is, is more directed to how women can change themselves. So how do you reconcile the two? I actually think the books are quite compatible in a lot of ways. And I, I'm not sure if Catherine was just being nice to me, but I think she agrees. And so Catherine's premise, as you say, is that this isn't women's fault. This is the system's fault. And we need to talk about the system change that is required to happen. And more specifically, men need to talk about that system change. There is nothing in that thesis I disagree with. The wholeheartedly on board with the whole thing. My concern is that for me and my career or you and your career, the system's not going to change fast enough for you to get what you want. In fact, I don't think the system's going to change fast enough for our sons and daughters to live the lives that they want. Systemic change, cultural change takes time and often you feel like you don't have that kind of power. But I think what we can change is how we feel and act within that system and simply by changing those things, the system itself starts to shift. So while my book looks at confidence, it's not so much about saying, hey, you non-confident lady, please be more confident so you will be better. It's trying to point out to the person reading that maybe your lack of confidence isn't actually caused by your lack of ability and skill. Mm. Maybe your lack of confidence is caused by a system that's making you feel that way. And simply by introducing the concept of that system and where it interacts with your personal levels of confidence, I think that in itself, just knowing that, gives a level of freedom. And then I've tried to give some extra tips on top 
that have helped me personally feel more confident in my work. And perhaps they accord less with Catherine's thesis. But I think the bulk of it, actually, I think the two books still work together. For what it's worth, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the damage has been done. You know, we're all working in these environments and working in them potentially can cause damage to a way that a woman sees herself. So you need to kind of combat that at the same time that you combat the actual structures as well. I agree and I enjoyed them both. Me too. I love Catherine's work. We've been on a bunch of writers' panels together for the last year or so and um, she's another woman who enjoys the wine and um, (laughs) she's very good fun and ridiculously intelligent. There are lots of other things that we would love to ask you about, but we don't want to take up your whole afternoon. So instead, we'll just finish with two quick questions that we like to ask of all the guests on our show. And the first of those is, do you have a mantra? Oh, wow. No, but now I feel like I should get one. one? I feel like I want one. Um, Not really, to be honest. I think the closest thing I've got to a mantra is what I've got on my... Oh, this is so embarrassing. I have the T-shirt from Friday Night Lights and the mantra from that television show is clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And if I had a mantra that'd be it and it's a football mantra and I don't even know the rules of American football but there you go I think that's fantastic this is one of Lucy's favorite questions and and every time we ask it we'll get people who are like immediately yes this is what it is or we'll get the people who are like oh no I don't think I have one and they're like oh but I do often say to myself like pretty much every day this and I'm like well there you go (laughs) we found it accidental mantras (laughs) All right. And if we were to ask for one piece of advice that you would like to share with professional women who are managing this juggle of career and family, what would it be? You shouldn't mistake what you've earned in this world and what you have worked hard for and fought hard for and what you've just been really, really good at as the product of luck because it's not. And the mediocre white blokes out there, they don't call themselves lucky. So for me, the tip is to eliminate that particular word from your vocabulary unless you have recently won the lottery. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you giving us your time, Jimena. No, no, thank you. It was so nice to talk about Not Just Lucky. I haven't spoken about that book for like six months. And I was a bit like, oh, shit, what's it about? But (laughs) I think I just go in the motherhood world. Uh, I think when you write a book, it's it's like a baby, isn't it? And it's yeah, um, it part of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I still love talking about that book. Good. Can you just tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to connect with you or follow you on social media? Yeah, of course. Uh, so one of the joys of having an unusual name is that I am very easy to find. Uh, you can get me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Jamila Rizvi and on Facebook I'm at Jamila Rizvi online. And if there's another Jamila Rizvi out there, I am yet to find her but would like to meet her. I know what you mean about the unusual name. I couldn't quite give it up when I got married. It was like, no, this is it for me. Yeah, that was never going to I've married a Smith. I was never going to be Camilla Smith. That was not happening. I think we're we're done. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for all your time and care and wonderful questions. Enjoy. Cheers. Thanks so much. That's all from the juggle today. Now you know a little bit more about Jamila's new book, The Motherhood, please don't forget to check on our Facebook page and our Instagram account at Managing the Juggle for all the details of the competition to win a copy of the book. There are two copies to win, so please go and check it out. It is an awesome book, as you have just heard. See you next time. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.